Hello and welcome. You're listening to Leadership Playbook, a London Business School podcast exploring the latest thinking and key issues for leaders and those aspiring to lead. I'm Viola Rollins, Executive Director of the London Business School Leadership Institute. I'll be the host of a series of episodes of Leadership Playbook focusing on various aspects of leadership. In this episode, we'll be discussing the topic of sustainability, the multiple opportunities it can create for organizations, and we'll hear some evidence-based insights on how to approach sustainability in a way that truly drives value creation. My guest today is Giannis Janu, an Associate Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship here at London Business School and a strategy scholar whose research focuses on sustainability and corporate social responsibility. His work in the field is widely cited, and he's been recognized and awarded for making significant contributions to the sustainability field. When he's not researching and teaching and sharing his insights in various forums, he runs the online executive education program, Sustainability, Leadership, and Corporate Responsibility here at London Business School. Giannis, delighted to have you here as a guest. Thank you for joining us. I really look forward to discussing with you, Viola. So before we get started, I had the privilege of engaging with your online course on sustainability, leadership, and corporate responsibility uh, as a participant last year. And I have to say, I found the experience stimulating, thought-provoking, and impressive in terms of the practical focus of the program. In fact, as someone who's an executive coach and tutor on our executing strategy for results program and a board advisor, I feel it's left me in an even stronger position to facilitate individuals thinking on how to look at sustainability in a more strategic way. Thank you, Viola. That's uh, very kind of you to mention the program. It is indeed a program that I put my heart and soul into. I try to translate over 10 years of uh, academic research, an evidence-based approach, if you like, on how should senior executives and board members think about sustainability? Where do we start? How do we build uh, sustainable organizations? How do we really embed it in the business and we become ourselves effective change leaders towards sustainable business models? Great questions that leaders really should spend time thinking about, especially given the current business environment. Today, I'd like to talk to you about some of your research and insights, hopefully in a way that stimulates the thinking and practice of those who are already responsible for sustainability in their own organization, as well as the individuals who are keen to increase the level and quality of conversation about this topic within their organizations. But before I delve into that, I want to get a better understanding about what has drawn you to be interested in the topic of sustainability, especially given you're a strategy scholar. The crisis that we are going through, whether you talk about the climate crisis, the loss of biodiversity, the social inequalities, the poverty, the inequalities within and across countries and so on, all of these issues are issues that I think fundamentally companies, business organizations, business schools, if you like, have something to contribute. At the end of the day, well, you know, companies are problem solvers. They find a need in the market. They find a gap. They find a problem. And what do they do? They innovate products and services that they can scale up efficiently, effectively, and profitably. Now, if we 
assume that companies and, uh, and, and the economy more broadly, but companies in particular have that capability, then the question is, can we leverage that capability to address some of the world's biggest challenges? We do need, for instance, large-scale solutions to uh, the carbon problem. So from a personal motivation point of view, since I was a scholar of organizations, since I was someone who was trying to understand how is it that companies are making these decisions and what impact do these decisions have, I, I saw sort of the two aligning, the capability I was studying versus the problems that we were collectively facing. And I thought that there was a very interesting intersection at the time, we're talking now towards 2009, 2010, an interesting intersection of where the two could fruitfully come together and perhaps meet my own personal purpose, if you like, in terms of how do I at least try to have an impact through my work and through what I study in the, in the, in the bigger picture. Fantastic. Now, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it now feels like uh, some of the world's largest companies are making more public and ambitious pronouncements relating to the topic of sustainability. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. I think over time, there's no question that we have seen a number of issues gain momentum, right? But I think the period we're currently going through is sort of a perfect storm. For instance, on the environmental issues, with every scientific report that comes out, basically they are telling us how much worse we're doing compared to how we thought we were doing. And that has to do with carbon emissions, the biodiversity, the acidification of oceans, the plastics crisis. Everything seems to be deteriorating. On top of that, we have a lot of social issues that emerge from Black Lives Matter to the, the Me Too movement to Extinction Rebellion. So I think it's more of a perfect storm that's hitting um, companies. And why is that the case? I mean, just think about the broader social and environmental context that companies are operating in. First of all, all this new scientific knowledge is certainly increasing the demands, especially on large companies, because those are the ones that have the largest footprints. And typically, they have had the largest negative footprints on the environment and on the planet. But also, it's a generational issue as well. I think that millennials and uh, Gen Z are much more interested in looking at these issues more closely, and they have this triple effect. So these new generations enter as consumers, so they care about products and services. They enter the workforce, so they certainly care about what is it that their employer is doing, right, on these issues. And by the way, again, large companies are some of the largest employers out there. That's why they are facing this pressure from within. And finally, there's an intergenerational transfer of wealth towards millennials, which means this generational issue also becomes an investment issue, not only because of you know, high net worth individuals transferring their wealth, but also because, well, these are the future pensioners. So they raise questions such as, how is my pension fund using my pension savings and how are they investing? At the same time, We've seen a lot of activity, if you like, in the broader social arena. We have the emergence of NGOs that demand transparency and accountability. We have a lot of, we've seen a lot of civic unrest, but also civic 
organizing that has become even more sophisticated over time. So, for instance, of course, we used to have NGOs going and protesting outside companies' headquarters. But over time, some of them actually bought corporate shares and they show up at annual shareholder meetings and they submit shareholder resolutions, right? So that sophistication of practices increases the pressure on companies as well. And last but not least, the role of government. Governments themselves are feeling these pressures from their citizens, and therefore we've seen increase in regulation, especially if we talk about environmental regulation. And in more recent years, it's not just regional governments, we've seen global institutions. Think about the discussion we currently have in terms of the European Central Bank and the extent to which it should account for climate change in its decisions. Think about the decisions of IMF, for instance. So we have an institutional pressure that goes beyond the boundaries of any particular country. And think about you know, huge commitments like what the European Union is doing, talking about the Green New Deal or a border adjustment tax when it comes to carbon emissions. So you see, it's, it's, it, that's what I refer to when I talk about the perfect storm. And this is particularly felt by largest companies because, well, those are the ones that have the largest footprints, right, across the environment, the labor market, the product and services market. So all of those seem to be uh, sort of, in a sense, aligning to create this, this perfect storm for companies. Having said that, there seems to be a lot of global players who are also questioning the concept of sustainability, as desirable as it is as a social goal, and also making pronouncements like, well, can it really affect my bottom line? Is it really going to have a positive impact? These seem to be part of the narrative that you're hearing, especially from those lagging behind. Any thoughts on that? Well, that's not surprising, Viola. And if we look historically at the corporate graveyard, it's packed with one's iconic brands that uh, just simply missed the writing on the wall. Think about Kodak, Polaroid, Sears, Blockbuster. The, the list is just endless. I bet that at the time, all of these companies were equally skeptical about the latest trends, right? So in other words, this idea of big, large corporations being unable to transition is not new and it's not unique to sustainability. But I do think that unlike disruptions that we have seen in the past, sustainability poses an extra hurdle because it's about companies understanding how to manage within the broader social and environmental domain. They need to transition their mind frames and their mindsets away from a narrowly defined and often narrowly minded economic context. That is not an easy transition. So inevitably, and I'm pretty sure you know this better than I do by having studied so many leaders over time, change in a mind frame is an absolutely difficult thing to achieve. And often it doesn't come through adaptation. It comes through replacement, through new leaders taking over or new companies entering and being a better fit for the environment. So I'm not surprised at all for this sort of resistance to change. That's a given. And, and that also highlights for us, by the way, that the sustainability story has two perspectives. It's going to be a story of potential adaptation by existing companies. But you know what? There's also Tesla. There's also Beyond Meat. There's also Impossible Foods. In other words, there's also entrepreneurial entry and replacement of those companies that are unable to transition. We don't yet know in the story of sustainability which of those two paths is going to dominate. And we certainly see a lot of 
attempts to adopt by companies, but we also see a lot of entry into all of these very traditional industries. Uh, and by the way, there's many that are still not under scrutiny. Think, think about steel making, the cement industry, the transportation industry. Those three industries are totally ready for disruption and innovation, given how polluting they are, given the impacts that they have. So that resistance is to be expected, but also, you know, that can almost signal to you which companies are going to be around in 20, 30 years down the line and which ones are not. Now, from the evidence that we do have, though, and this is the holy grail question that you asked earlier about the impact on the bottom line. Well, let's be honest. How could a company possibly survive by ignoring these issues? I mean, it's, I cannot imagine a future state of the world where you can ignore what's happening around you and still be a profitable company, right? So I think that to some extent, almost all companies would need to reach a certain sort of minimum level of risk management. In other words, to clean house, there's going to be a number of common best practices that they will absolutely have to do in order to survive. But then on top of that, the best of companies, as always, they're going to find those dimensions of differentiation within sustainability, right, that will allow them to create competitive advantages. And that's a lot of what I've been finding in, in my work. The idea that, first of all, there is this distinction between common and unique sustainability practices, that unique practices can lead to outperformance when they are associated with dimensions of differentiation. But also, if you compare apples to apples, if you compare high versus low sustainability companies over time, when it's done correctly, no greenwashing, no box ticking, but actually true integration into the business strategy, then of course we have evidence for our performance. Let me pick up on something you've just said there, Jonas. I want to get you to talk a little bit about the sequencing in regard to thinking about sustainability and thinking about strategy. I mean, what comes first? I think that sustainability and strategy are basically the two, or should be, the two sides of the same coin. And let me actually explain a little bit why do I think that the adoption of sustainability is fundamentally a strategic decision. So here's the thing. Any company out there, at the very least, needs to comply with laws and regulations. So compliance, whether it's for environmental laws and regulations or human rights or workers' rights and so on, at the very least, there needs to be compliance, right? That does not mean that all companies comply all the time, right? Think about Volkswagen and Dieselgate, for instance, right? But let's assume that compliance is where we begin. Now, from there on, companies have a choice. To what extent am I going to address these issues? In other words, how far am I going to stick my head out? For instance, am I just going to, I don't know, certify my buildings and as green buildings and change the light bulbs and increase my energy efficiency? Or do I want to become the next Paul Polman of my industry? Now, you see between those two choices, there's a whole range of how companies can engage on these issues. Now, what does that tell us? Though? It also tells us that there's no free lunch out there. Right? Because you hear a lot uh, about this, Vila, you know, oh, it's all about finding a stakeholder, finding a win-win, holding hands, dancing kumbaya, and the world is going to be a better place. It doesn't work that way. There is no free lunch. If you're going to start looking at your stakeholders, for instance, as intangible assets, then you need to make sure that you make investments. Investments generate 
trade-offs because you need to allocate limited financial resources, limited human capital resources sometimes, limited resources more broadly. But you see, the allocation of limited resources in order to achieve an objective is precisely what we call strategy, right? That is what strategy is. Strategy is the tool that allows you to make those decisions as best as possible. So the link that I see between sustainability and strategy is that sustainability entails inevitable trade-offs if you commit to doing it right. Think about cost versus price, long-term strategy versus short-term investors, financial performance versus social impact all of those trade-offs are not going to solve themselves. So they require management. And that's, by the way, going back to your previous question, that's precisely what's going to distinguish winners and losers. Not all companies are going to be resolving those trade-offs. They're not going to develop the same capability to resolve them. Let me just take you very quickly outside of the sustainability context. Think about innovation. Do you know of any company that doesn't want to be innovative? Of course, all of them want to be innovative. That doesn't mean all of them will be innovative. It's the same idea. They need to make the right decisions, the right investments to become innovative. It's exactly the same idea in sustainability. Like those traders, and as you said, uh, Violet, some of the companies are going to sit back and say, oh my God, I don't know how to address them. My buyers are not going to buy this and so on. And they just sit back and wait for, well, the competitors to do it or the government to take care of it and so on. Those are the sluggish companies. Those are not the leading companies, right? The leading companies, you know, they say, oh, this is a trade-off, but we can use it to our advantage because you know what? If we resolve this, then we'll be the better company out there. We'll be a company that is both generating social value and profitability. So as I often say to my students, you know, nobody innovates from the comfort of their couch, right? You need to face a problem. You need to face a need. In this case, you need to face a trade-off. So that's how I see the link between sustainability and, and strategy. Yeah, that's great. And for me, Giannis, it sounds like there's an even more fundamental issue around this, which is really understanding that if you're going to embrace the notion of sustainability, you need to rethink your business model. Sustainability is not necessarily this bolt-on cosmetic activity that happens in organizations. But if you're really committed to it, it requires rethinking your entire business model. Oh, absolutely. It's sustainability is not just a disruption, but the mother of all disruptions, right? Because companies are lacking the knowledge, the skills, and the experience that they need in order to function within these broadly defined social and environmental domains, and they need to learn. And on top of that, and as I'm sure you know, again, better than I do, it's for leaders that want to move their entire business towards sustainable business models, it's about the heart and the mind. It's about the data and the motivation. It's about the data and the inspiration. It's about the financial case, but also the purposeful case, creating meaning for employees to move in that direction. So you're absolutely right when you say that this is not an add-on. It's, it's certainly not, as I tell my students, it's certainly not a Friday afternoon activity, but it's also not a Monday morning decision, like you evaluate an acquisition, for instance, right? Because first of all, it has to do with the identity of the organization. What do we stand for? Why is the environment important to us? Why is society important to us? Why is diversity important to us? So at one level, it absolutely touches on the core values, the culture, the beliefs of the organization. And of course, at the second level, it's about, well, how able, how capable are we at addressing these issues? So for instance, do we have the required 
trust within the organization in order to engage this organizational change process. As again, you, you know better than I, the organizational change it frightens people. It sounds scary, right? Will I still be there when the change is over? What's the, at the other end of it? People appreciate the, the status quo as opposed to shifting everything around them. Now, if you're doing sustainability right, it cannot be piecemeal. You'll have to change your product, your processes, your time horizon for your decision-making. You'll have to change your corporate governance. You have to change the way that you look at your stakeholders. Because here's the big mind frame or mindset transition that we talked about earlier, right? So if you believe in a shareholder primacy sort of model of companies, then guess what happens? It, it, almost inevitably, you look at employees, you look at suppliers, and you look at customers in a transactional matter, right? These are people that you're, you're merely signing contracts and transacting with. But if you go to a stakeholder model, these are not just transactions. These are partners that you need in order to co-create value. These are actors that you need to invest time and effort in. And these are essentially assets that you need to invest in. And you see, when you start looking at those as central to your business model, then they don't, they're not costs. They are investments because they are your co-creators of value. Now, it doesn't mean you'll have to do that with all of your stakeholders. It has to be more strategic than that. You need to understand what issues are material for my industry, which of those stakeholders are key for my business model and at the heart of my business model, right? So you have to become more sophisticated than that. But the idea is that going from that shareholder understanding to the stakeholder understanding, it's a massive transition that has implications both for the formal structures of the organization as well as the softer aspects of the organization, like culture, like values, like beliefs. I don't know if you feel you've specifically touched on this, Giannis, but you're alluding to this concept of creating value, which I think is a really critical issue. And again, something that resonated for me when I attended your program. Can you say just a bit more about how you feel sustainability can contribute to you delivering better bottom line results and maybe, again, how innovation plays a part in that? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, Viola, it's about the business case of sustainability, but in my view, it's much more important to understand the inner workings of that, how that value is being created. And this is a very, very active area of academic research because we really want to sort of find the evidence and really understand what are the value creation mechanisms. And right now, we actually have a very, very solid understanding for a number of them. For instance, we do know that this idea of sustainability and ESG enable companies to have better access to human capital. Companies that do commit to sustainability are able to engage, recruit, and retain human gap capital better than others. So you see immediately, think about this in a competitive context, is think about for example, if you're a consulting company, how important it is to have preferential access to human capital. And by the way, the opposite can happen. This is exactly why industries like oil and gas or tobacco or even gambling are facing issues with recruitment, right? Because to some extent, they're especially oil and gas, they're considered delegitimized industries, right? So human capital is a very important aspect. Second, 
things like the social license to operate. Think about mining companies. It used to be the case that mining companies were winning contracts with governments. And then, you know, when you're done exploiting the mine, you would leave as a company, you would leave behind a devastated local economy. You would leave a huge hole in the ground sometimes, right? And you wouldn't care. But that over time meant that mining companies started to lose their social license to operate. So we've seen in the mining industry, companies that now submit bids in order to exploit a mine, they also need to have a plan in place about you know, what happens when they're done? How do they make sure that the local economy survives after perhaps the mine is done with? So social license to operate is another important thing. Third is the whole idea of brand reputation. There's a lot of uh, research, especially in marketing, that shows that the, what we call company customer identification is enhanced when a company truly commits to this idea of sustainability and, and social responsibility. We know, of course, that you know ethical consumerism and green consumerism is not yet in the majority, but is definitely on the rise. And this is where the generational issue comes in as well. We know that the younger generations are much more likely to check for these things, right? So that there's huge demands for transparency by companies. There's also the innovation aspect, a very, very important one. Remember when we talked about trade-offs, I said, you know, innovation doesn't happen from the luxury of your couch. So the best of companies are going to use these trade-offs as moonshot opportunities, as motivational, as an inspirational goals. And look how nicely sustainability can be used as a catalyst for more innovation. Because what do you need in an innovation process, Viola? You need, obviously, the human capital, the best and the brightest to be working for you. You need to give them a long-term horizon. You cannot tell them, I want you to innovate and innovate by tomorrow. It's not going to happen, right? You need to give them the psychological safety to experiment and fail because fail is an inevitable part of experimentation. Otherwise, you don't get to innovation. But, you know, most companies are not serious in their commitment. They tell you, oh, you know, I want you to fail in this company and we support failure. 95% of them, once you fail, what do they do? They fire you. So that commitment is fecal, it's not genuine. And of course, a domain that I work in quite a lot is this link between sustainability and financial markets. We know that this very, very powerful institution is slowly but surely awakening to the fact that companies are integrating sustainability into the way they do business. They, At the very least, they think that this is a, a risk management tool. So all companies need to, at the very least, understand the environmental and social risks that they're facing in their respective industries. But increasingly so, and we see this a lot from the asset owners as well as asset managers side, they're also trying to see the upside because the world's largest problems may also be opportunities for innovation and for growth for the companies that can actually solve this problem. Imagine if you're a company that can very effectively, for instance, capture carbon and do it at a low, sufficiently low cost. Can you imagine the size of this opportunity, for instance, right? So the upside is already there. But notice, Viola, all of the mechanisms that I described to you are substantial. They need to be strategic. They need to be select. These are not. It's not just about you know publishing your sustainability report in a you know glossy paper or in a super wow website, right? I mean, you can do that if you like. But the the idea is, is all about the true integration of these issues, in fact, in the way that you do business. I guess one of the other things I'm curious about, Giannis, and again, you've touched on this a bit, is that sustainability is not a tactical activity, it's a strategic activity. 
it involves transformation and change. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what you feel are the behaviors and mindsets that organizations need to start to develop and foster in leadership, with teams, with individuals, to help facilitate what's required to tackle sustainability. Yeah, there's a couple of dimensions, uh, Violet, that I think are absolutely essential. So these are large, complex issues. First thing to understand is that no one company, in fact, no one industry alone is going to resolve these issues. So I think we need a mind frame of collaboration in order to be able to address these issues, both within the organization and, for instance, across departments, across functions, across hierarchical levels, but also outside the, the organization. I think that's why you see a lot of, for instance, associations at the level of the industry engaging on these issues, but also even more at the level of the economy, because these are not issues that can be addressed by one company alone. So I think that mind frame of collaboration is absolutely important. Second of all, which is linked to collaboration, is the fact that we need diversity of thought. We need diversity of ideas. We cannot go always back to sort of the... the what used to work in the past is not going to work for these new challenges that we are facing. That's why I think on top of all the other benefits of diversity, for instance, having that diversity of thought, whether it comes from different uh, race groups, different uh, ethnic groups, different cultural backgrounds, any kind of diversity is useful because we really need to be able, in my humble opinion at least, we need to be able to almost brainstorm at a whole different level in order to address these challenges. So that's absolutely important. So, but in order to be that diverse, in my experience, you have to have what we, you know, not so cliche, but this idea of an open mindset. In other words, you have to convert, if you like, the business or the organization into an open system. And how do you do that? You need to develop the capability for an ongoing stakeholder dialogue. You don't only speak to your customers as a transaction, right? You need to understand their needs, their demands, their expectations, how they're judging you, what are their purchasing criteria now, their purchasing criteria going forward. How is it that your product or service is making their life better or worse as they're using it? Same idea on the supply side. And one other component I would add is basically this idea of, I feel that the the best of leaders out there are able to almost wear the two hats at the same time. They are obviously excellent, flawless managers, but at the same time, they can see the long-term vision. And it's very difficult to find that combination, right? I would argue that there's many leaders out there that you know, they talk about vision, but they are not good managers. And that's just not good enough. Or you hear things like, oh, this is a long-term strategy. It's going to pay off in the long... Well, you know what? Nobody's going to wake up one day and say, oh, today I'm in the long-term. Let's see if it paid off. The idea of long-term thinking is to be able to visualize, in my view at least, what your company should look like 10, 20 years down the line in order to be a good fit for the economic and social environmental realities in 20 years and be able to look backwards to the present and devise a strategy on how you're going to get there. That's what long-term thinking means to me. And do that in a short-term disciplined way. That's exactly what long-term is. Now, not everyone is able to have that mind frame, to assume that mind frame and to follow that sort of a, a strategy. Because it's easy to give up, for instance, on 
financial performance in order to be environmentally responsible. Of course, that's the easiest thing in the world, right? I can do everybody, anybody can do that. The issue is that if you give up on financial performance and you're the best environmental company, well, in two years down the line, you're either going to go bankrupt or be an ineffective small-scale charity. So the holy grail is to be able to do those two aspects, if you like, at the same time. So that's the crucial skill that is required. So that's what I would say is kind of the the, the fundamental shift in, in leadership. I think that's how I would characterize sort of the, the qualities that a, a sustainability leader will have to have. Yes. And I would even build on that by saying that involves seeing strategy as a dynamic process. It's not about we create strategy and we execute it and then look up five years later and see where we are. It's more of a process that requires different practices and approaches to strategy execution, which involve experimentation, innovation, et cetera. Well, funny that you mentioned that, Vila, because to be honest with you, dynamic is putting it politely. When I teach strategy to my students, you know what I tell them? Strategy needs to be an obsession because if you really understand strategy, you really understand that the whole point is to continuously scan internally and externally about things that are changing and continuously ask, is the strategic health of my organization still good enough? So, but in order to do that, you have to continuously have that radar on. Now, I just want to switch gears a bit. You know that my colleagues and I in the LBS Leadership Institute undertake research and develop thought leadership pieces on issues relating to boards and board effectiveness. Given this, I'm keen to hear your thoughts on what you see as the role of boards in sustainability efforts. My experience is that often people just think that this is an executive team issue, but I believe there's a big role that boards have to play. Any thoughts to share with us on that? It's an absolutely fundamental role. And from research, we know that the best of companies actually have sustainability as a formal board responsibility. There is a board level subcommittee that oversees sustainability issues. So it is absolutely essential to have that level of organizational commitment, monitoring and guidance of management in order to implement sustainability practices. On top of that, sustainability practices are still contested. It's not like a CEO says, I'm gonna, I wanna make the world's most innovative company. Who's gonna disagree with that? Nobody's gonna disagree with that. But if you come out and say, I wanna make this the, the world's most sustainable company, of course you're gonna find resistance. So the board can provide legitimacy to management in order to pursue a sustainability as a long-term strategy. And especially if we're talking about boards and directors that actually have had the experience of seeing through sustainability initiatives across different industries, for instance, then that experience is absolutely valuable. It also means that we might want to start rethinking the skill set that boards have, because traditionally, the truth of the matter is that a lot of directors simply do not have the necessary knowledge or skills in order to be able to advise companies in the right way. So for instance, there's a recent report by NYU, the Center for Sustainable Business that came out looking at directors' backgrounds. And it's, it's actually very interesting numbers that show the very, very low percentage of board of directors that possess the relevant knowledge in order to guide management. So I think there's a huge need out there, first of all, for education, for skills development at that level of the organization. And also, by the way, this goes back to the diversity issue that we talked about 
earlier that has to be within the organization. If the board is there to guide management about how the company should look in 20, 30 years down the line, well, the board should reflect how the world is going to look in 20, 30 years down the line, right? And we know, and you know this better than I do, especially if we look at some more, you know, established companies or things like pension funds and so on, these are rooms that have been traditionally dominated by old white men. And that's not attainable anymore. That's not the way the world is going. That's not the type of diversity that we need in these boardrooms. So we need to rethink the composition of this boardrooms as well. So I think the headline implications for boards, because even their role needs to be rethought. And by the way, the last thing I'm going to add there is this idea of the fiduciary responsibility of boards. A lot of discussion by legal scholars of whether boards should be accounting for environmental and social issues. I tend to align with those that say, well, not taking into account these issues is a breach of your fiduciary duty, given the world where it's going. But perhaps there is a bigger question there in terms of understanding, you know, explaining even the laws and regulations and how they truly apply in terms of the margin of discretion that boards have in order to to advise and guide companies towards sustainability and ESG. So absolutely essential to tackle all of those issues at the board level. Now, one last question. We talked about sustainability in a very strategic context, but Any thoughts for those emerging leaders or middle managers who have maybe been inspired by some of the things that we've been talking about today? Where might they start if they want to start facilitating thinking around sustainability in a different way in their organizations? I think that actually this is not just an issue of top management. As we said earlier, a successful process will require a bottoms-up approach. So for middle managers, start with looking at your team, for instance. How does your team integrate these issues into their decision-making? What is the time horizon for their decision-making? What is the diversity of your own team? Take a good look at building stakeholder engagement practices. How does your team, especially if it's a product team, for instance, how do you engage with your suppliers? How do you engage with your customers? Do you understand environmental and social demands and expectations from both of them, even before you go outside the organization? Also, product teams within within companies, typically, especially if companies have multiple product lines, you can form internal, informal sustainability committees. What sort of environmental issues are you facing? How about social issues? Is there anything that we can learn from each other? What if we partner up? Can we, for instance, there are issues that might be too expensive for a small-scale team to do, but if you collaborate with multiple teams in the organization, you can spread the expenses and, for instance, you have a better product, right? For And really try to understand the, the, the motivation of your own team. What drives them? Why do they wake up in the morning and come to work for you? And by the way, this also goes, Violet, to this issue that I think is very important, which is individual responsibility. And many people say, well, you know, individuals cannot make a big change on their own, but we're not on our own in this highly interconnected world. We're not on our own. And even if you think about, you said, you know, what can you do as a middle manager? Whereas, let's say I'm a middle manager, right? Well, of course, I have the choice of how do I engage with my team? How, what do I advocate for internally? Look at what happened in Amazon, right? 8,000 employees signed a letter to the company when, when they realized that perhaps Amazon was not doing enough on the environmental front. So there is internal corporate activism when you feel strongly about these issues. But also think about daily life. 
Essentially, we vote every time we buy something. Well, we vote with our wallet in terms of the companies that we choose to interact with, right? We vote with our careers in terms of the companies that we choose to work for, right? So our choice of employer is a dimension of impact. We actually vote in the voting booth, which is, again, absolutely essential because that's what's going to drive the regulations that we want to see in order to protect the environment, for instance, or reduce social inequalities. So our consumption behavior, our lifestyles, I mean, every, I mean, it's hard to imagine any decision we make on an individual basis that's not going to affect some of these environmental and social issues, right? So in other words, we as individuals, I think we have a lot of agency and we have a lot of ways to contribute to these issues, right? And, and middle managers themselves can set an example for their teams. They can internally, they can galvanize interest. They can start initiatives within the organization. They can do small-scale experimentation to show results, which can then afford them more discretion and more influence, perhaps. So all of those, I think, are things that uh, anybody can do, right? And far beyond the, the board and the CEOs, but across the organization. That's great. And I think that's a super note to end on. Thank you so much for spending time with me today, Giannis. A very rich and timely conversation. And we look forward to hearing about your continued insights on sustainability as this issue becomes even more critical for the business community. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Vaila. Always a pleasure and a privilege. And I love discussing these uh, issues uh, with you. And I'm pretty sure we'll get even more opportunities to do so. Sadly, these issues are not going away, but gladly we are on the way to addressing them. And it's always an exciting space to be in and exciting issues to discuss. So I'm looking forward to it. And thanks again for having me. My pleasure. You've been listening to Leadership Playbook, a London Business School podcast. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to the podcast. Just search London Business School in your podcasting app of choice. To receive a curated selection of articles, podcasts, and films direct to your inbox each fortnight, subscribe to Think at London Business School, the place to go for thought leadership and business insights from London Business School faculty and alumni. Just tap the link in the show notes below. Also, don't forget to check out the activities and thought leadership pieces emerging from the London Business School Leadership Institute. Links to our website can also be found in the show notes below. Thanks again for joining us.